0: Me in Genesis chapter 14 once again. This is the last time that we are going to be in this chapter right here. In fact, the text that we're going to look at today, we have already read together. We studied it last week, but we're going back. We're going back to three verses that we've already read. Why are we doing that? Because there's still some meat on the bone, all right? I want you to get all of it. And sometimes that's how the Word of God is. Uh, Just because you give it a cursory overview doesn't mean that you got everything that you need to get. And there is an important concept here. In fact, there's an individual that we are introduced to that requires a little more analysis. This is a mysterious figure, I dare say the most mysterious figure in your Old Testament, perhaps even in your entire Bible. And uh, we're going to look at this guy. Now let me remind you the backstory. The context of this passage, Genesis 14, starting in verse 17, what is going on is Abram has just marshaled his forces. He's got 300 and some odd guys that are under his authority. They serve him. They are trained for battle, and he has taken them up into Syria in pursuit of a king named Caterliomer. Caterliomer has been running some sort of a protection racket with the cities of Canaan, including Sodom. And they're sick of it, so they rebel against him. And so Leomer has invaded and looted and pillaged and kidnapped a slew of their prominent citizens, including Abram's good-for-nothing nephew, Lot. And so Abram being the righteous man that he is, he takes his guys and he chases that king up there into Syria and defeats him militarily and returns with all the spoils of war and the hostages that he is now liberated. And he comes back and waiting for him is a contingency of Canaanite kings. And that's where we pick it up. So look with me, Genesis 14, verse 17. After his return from the defeat of Caterleomer and the kings who were with him... The king of Sodom went out to meet him, Abram, at the valley of Shaveh. That is the king's valley. And here's the guy that we are concerned with today. In verse 18 it says, And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be, Abram, by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And so it is this individual named Melchizedek that we are looking at today. He is a thoroughly intriguing figure. Uh, He only covers three verses here in Genesis, but I assure you, he is given a lot of real estate elsewhere in scripture, and we're gonna see some of that today. Now, I remember when I first heard about this guy, I began to study him, and I began to read what other people had uh, learned about him and what the conclusions that they had drawn concerning his identity. And that is really the question at hand here. Now, as we read that passage, maybe, just maybe, some questions popped into your mind about Melchizedek, as they did for me when I first read about him. Here's a guy who knows who the one true God is. He serves that God. He speaks for that God. He knows who Abram is. He knows that God has blessed Abram. And so he is a priest of the Most High God here in Canaan. Canaan is a land of paganism and wickedness. In fact, God has brought Abram in to be his emissary, his representative in a land of pagan uh, practice. What is this guy doing there? Who is he? If he is indeed a righteous man and a priest of the Most High God, why did God not make a covenant with him instead of this guy, Abram, who wasn't even uh, a a righteous man when God first came to him. And so these are some of the questions that I have. And what makes him particularly interesting is not only only the questions that we've just raised uh, in Genesis 14, but there are some things that are said about him elsewhere in Scripture that I want to show you. And they raise even more questions, but the main focus on Melchizedek historically has been his connection to none other than Jesus Christ. There is a similarity there. There's something that we are meant to see, a connection with our Lord. And so we're gonna explore some theories about his identity today. Now I assure you that this sermon is not gonna fall into the category of Bible trivia or fringe theology But there is a a very important truth that all of us are to take away today as born-again Christians. There's something that we are to cling to, and we're going to reap that from our text today. I want you to pray with me right now before we dive in. Heavenly Father, I just ask that you would just light up your word for us today, Lord. I pray that we would be encouraged, we would be blessed, that we would see what you want us to see, and that we would take something away from this that is absolutely life-changing in our perspective, not only on your word, but on your Savior, your Son, Jesus Christ, and how we relate to him. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Who is Melchizedek? Different camps have different theories. Now, there are some concepts I want to share with you as we explore the identity of this mysterious individual. The first concept I want to share with you, and you're free to write this down if you wish, is about the idea that he is a type a type of Christ, they say. What does that mean to be a type? Well, there is something called typology in the Old Testament. Uh, A type is an Old Testament person or practice that anticipates a New Testament reality. For example, Passover in the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus, that is a type of the atonement that was to come later on through the Messiah. Uh, If you recall the story in Egypt, Israelites are down there in captivity. God sends plagues. The final and worst plague of all is the death angel, a plague on the firstborn of Egypt, and so they were given instructions. Take a spotless lamb, shed his blood, put the blood on the doorpost of your house, and if your house is covered by the blood of the lamb, the wrath of God would pass over you. That's a type, and we understand that to be a type of the atonement, that we who are born again, we have the blood of the lamb. Jesus Christ, and therefore the wrath of God passes over us. That's what typology is. In fact, the whole Jewish sacrificial system is a type of the atonement. But there are also types of Christ. And so when we say someone is a type of Christ, that is a person who typifies Jesus who would eventually come. There are individuals in your Old Testament that remind us, that point ahead to the Messiah. Adam was a type of Christ in that he was once sinless, And so, in fact, Jesus is called the last Adam. You know, the scriptures say that the first Adam brought death. The last Adam brings life. So Adam was a type of Christ. Uh, Jonah was a type of Christ. God raised him, right? Same with Joseph, type of Christ. David, of course, is a type of Christ. And uh, Samson as well. There are others. There are many who are types of Christ. Some people say, well, that's what Melchizedek is. And and there are reasons that we'll explore later, but some say he's just, he's a type of Christ. He points ahead to Christ, to Jesus. Now, the difference would be, I would say, that uh, in the aforementioned people, those were obviously human beings that were deeply flawed. I think of Adam and Samson and David, deeply flawed people. You, You don't see any flaws in this man Melchizedek. And so it's very, very interesting. Is he a type of Christ? He may well be, but there's another possibility And I want to introduce a concept to you called theophany. What is a theophany? Well, a theophany is a tangible manifestation of God in Scripture. All right? So what that means is that God would manifest as something physical, as something tangible, so that people could relate to him. I think of uh, Moses and the burning bush in Exodus, that God spoke to him, I am that I am. They're in the, that encounter on Mount Sinai, and so the burning bush. Some say, you know, uh, D- Balaam's donkey that spoke. I used to love that story when I was a kid, you know, and that, that, that has been said to be a theophany, perhaps. But there's a subset of that concept of theophany. It's called a Christophany. A Christophany, what is that? Well, that is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. Meaning what? That means that... In the Old Testament, there were incidents where Jesus would appear in physical form prior to his incarnation, his birth, in Bethlehem many, many years later. You say, that's a thing? Indeed it is. In fact, uh, there are going to be some incidents that we're going to discover in our study of Genesis and even in our study of Abraham. We're going to see Christophanes. We are. And so some people have wondered if perhaps... This man, Melchizedek, is not the earliest obvious example of a Christophany, that Melchizedek is none other than Jesus, appearing prior to his incarnation. And so that's an idea. Now, people have argued for that. People have made the case for it, against it. You can make it either way. Some have said, Pastor Scott, what do you think? Who do you think Melchizedek is? Well, if I'm honest with you, I'd I'd have to tell you, I kind of lean toward the notion that Melchizedek was a Christophany. Now, can I prove that beyond a shadow of a doubt? No. I can't be dogmatic about that. Uh, But there's a bigger thing that we're going to look at today. Because this sermon does not rise and fall on whether or or not he was Christ. Uh, What we're going to find is a truth that is very, very powerful. But at a minimum, he is a type of Christ. He may well have been Christ, appearing to Abram in that day. But I want to ask a question here. First of all, how does this mysterious figure of Melchizedek remind us of Jesus? Let's go back. Let's look at verse 18. It says, And Melchizedek, king of Salem or Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God most high. And so there's some observations we make about him. First of all, he reminds us of Jesus in that, in your notes, he was both king and priest. He's both a king and a priest, all right? Uh, first of all, in, in the fact that he's a king, his name, Melchizedek, means king of righteousness. That's what Melchizedek means. It's a compound word, Melchizedek. Mel- Melki comes from Melech, which means king. Tzedek means righteousness, and that is an important statement in Canaan because there are many kings in Canaan, and they are not righteous kings. They are pagan. They are, godly. They are godless. They are wicked and so, this is by contrast a king of righteousness. Uh, he is also a king of peace. A king of peace. He is said to be the king of a place called Salem. Uh, salem, all right? Comes from the Hebrew, shalem, which means peace. You know the word shalom, which is a greeting. Peace be to you. Shalom, right? Well, this is the actual concept of peace. Shalem or salem. And uh, some scholars have said that that was an actual ancient site, and it is the very same site, they say, as the city of Jerusalem, all right? And you see Jerusalem referred to as Salem or Salem. You see it in Psalm 76, verse 1, in Judah, God is known. His name is great in Israel. In Salem also is his tabernacle, and his dwelling place is in Zion, And some traditions say that it's this guy Melchizedek that changed the name from Salem to Jerusalem, that he took the word Jireh, as in Jehovah Jireh. You remember the old chorus we used to sing? Jehovah Jireh, my what? My provider, because Jireh means provide. Jehovah Jireh, God will provide. Jerusalem is God will provide peace. That's what the city means. And Jerusalem was ruled in this era by a people called uh, was occupied by a people called the Jebusites, and so was this guy Melchizedek? Was he the long-standing human ruler of Jerusalem? Well, Jerusalem was uh, occupied by the Jebusites. Uh, they they remained in power of that city until David conquers them, and that's when it becomes the capital of Israel, but they were not monotheistic, they were a pagan people, and so I don't believe that Melchizedek was the actual ruler of the Jebusites in Jerusalem. At a minimum, he was a spiritual ruler. That God's, God's place of rule would always be, eternally, this city. This city is very special to God, and it would remain so. And so he's a king, not In the human sense, but in the sense of righteousness and peace. And we also see he's a he's a priest of God most high. Uh, A priest. That's gonna be a very, very important office in the nation of Israel in its history. But I have to observe that this is the very first time that you see this office in Scripture. Now, you, you see people like Abel. Abel would operate, and he would function as a priest of sorts. People would bring their, their uh, lamb at times of sacrifice to Abel. But the title of priest, this is the first time that we see that, and we see he's a priest of the God Most High. That is the Hebrew phrase, El Elion. And so that is very important, that, that phrase, to say that God is the God Most High it's an all-encompassing term. I think of the Arab Muslims today who shout out Allahu Akbar, which means God is greater. And it's a very comparative term. My God is greater than what? My God's greater than your God. It's a one-to-one comparison. You know, my dad could beat up your dad. That's the idea. And yet this is bigger than that to say El Elyon is to say he is the greatest of all God. In a land like Canaan, where there are a a plethora of many false man-made gods, this is the God most high. There's no comparison. There is no equal. He is above all. And then we see in your notes, not only is he a king and a priest, but he speaks blessing, this Melchizedek. Verse 19, he blessed him, Abram. He said, blessed be Abram by God most high. And you need to understand that the one who bestows blessing by default is the greater, it is the superior, okay? He's greater than the one who is being blessed. And who is being blessed here? It's Abram. What do we know about Abram? He is the recipient of the covenant of God. God has made a promise to this man, and so you could safely say Abram is the greatest of all men. And yet here you've got this guy Melchizedek who bestows blessing upon the one who is the recipient of God's covenant. It's a remarkable thing to ponder here. And if there's any question about whether or not Melchizedek is superior to Abram, I want you to look and see how Abram responds to Melchizedek. It goes on to say that an Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And so this means in your notes that this man, Melchizedek, receives a tithe He blesses Abram, but he also receives a tithe from Abram. The word for tithe means tenth. And so when Abram gives him a tenth, he is in essence tithing. This is the first time we see the concept of a tithe in Scripture. And that's going to become very important in the Jewish legal system under the law. The Jews are going to be commanded to give a tithe. Now, if your pastor were obsessed with money, this is where I would make this sermon all about money. And I would preach at you about give your tithes unto the Lord. Give 10%. Uh, Except that I, I can't say that to you because I don't happen to believe that the tithe in terms of a percentage is a New Testament concept. All right? A tithe is an Old Testament notion. That is part of the Jewish law and we are not operating under the law today. You say, well, don't you believe in giving? Indeed, I do. I know that you know that I do, but I don't believe that we are bound to a specific percentage. We are to give cheerfully. Scripture makes that clear. We are to give sacrificially, as did Christ for us. But in terms of 10%, you give, as Paul says, as one who has purposed in his heart to give, not as one under compulsion. You give as God directs you to give. So if you're like, well, I thought I had to give 10%, I think that's a good place to start. Why would a Christian under grace give less than a Jew under the law? And yet, even the Jew gave more than 10% because it was 10% of this and 10% of that, and every third year it was 10% of something else. And so in actuality, it would, it would come out to be about a third. And all that to say that if, if you really want to you know, be like the Jews of old and you want to give a third, nobody's going to turn that down. Okay, I'm, you know, do what God tells you to do. That's all I'm saying. So he receives a tithe, and then I want you to see in your notes, he's connected to Messiah in the book of Psalms. I told you that you're going to see this guy pop up in Scripture elsewhere. And we do. I want you to keep your place here. Turn to Psalm 110. Let me show you something that mentions Melchizedek. This is a very important psalm. This psalm is quoted in the New Testament more than any other psalm. There are some psalms that are true of David, but they are true in a larger respect of Jesus Christ, of the Messiah, and so this is a prophetic psalm. It's a messianic psalm. Here's how it begins, Psalm 110, verse one, the Lord says to my Lord, that's the words of David, the Lord says to my Lord, meaning God the Father says to the Messiah. That's what that means, the Son of God. God the Father says to the Son of God. You say, how do you know that's what that means? Well, because Jesus interprets it that way. He quotes from this psalm when he's uh, dealing with the Pharisees in Matthew 21. They're launching questions at him, and he comes right back at them with a question of his own. And by the way, if you ever ask Christ a question and he responds with a question, you are in for it. You just get ready, because he's about to school you. He says to them, uh, he says, this Messiah... Whose son is he? And they respond to him, and they answer as any Jewish child had been trained to answer. They say, the Messiah is the son of David, because the Messiah was always prophesied to come from the Davidic line. And so they say, he's the son of David. And then Jesus says, okay, well, if he's David's son, how can he be David's Lord? And he's referencing Psalm 110. How can David say, if he is the son of David, that... The Lord says to my Lord, the Messiah, how can he be God and man at the same time? And the Jews are flummoxed by that. Now you and I understand how that works. God and man can be one because we understand the incarnation. We understand he was born of a virgin. He was sent by God. God sent his only son. He became flesh, dwelt among man. We get that. They didn't get that. They don't want any more questions. They They just want to leave Jesus alone at this point. Because he's bested them. But we go on in Psalm 110, the Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And then, verse 2, the Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. What is being described here? A king. So the Messiah, we, we understand from Psalm 110, is a king. Kings have scepters. Kings have enemies under their feet. Kings rule from a throne, right? That's what a king does. And then we see verse three, your people will offer themselves freely in the day of your power in holy garments. Who wears a holy garment? Hmm. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. David saying someday we're gonna have a king against whom no one will rebel, but not only will he be a king, verse four, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest, So he's a king, this Messiah is going to be a king, and he's going to be a priest, but not just any priest. He says, you will be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, okay? The Lord is at your right hand. So the Messiah is a king and a priest, and he's a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And I want you to underline that phrase if you can. That's going to be a very important phrase. We're going to see that again. And it means something. Now, here's why this whole concept is important, that the Messiah be both a king and a priest. In Israel's history, there were two major arms of government. You had the high priest who would rule the people religiously, and you had the king who would rule them politically. They were different offices. They were distinct. But they they came into being under the same authority. They were both under the authority of God. The king ruled in the name of God. The priest represented the people to the holiness of God. Okay? So you got one guy, the king, he's appointed by God to reign and to rule over the people. The priest is appointed by God to come on behalf of the people and to conduct sacrifices to appease the justice of God. But both were under God. Nonetheless, God made these two distinct roles. And you had to have both. You had to have a king and you had to have a priest in the case of Israel. How come? Have you ever thought about why our nation has three branches of government? We've got the judicial and we've got the legislative and we've got the executive. Why did the framers set it up that way? Because no one man could have all the power. And so God, God thought of that idea first. It's instituted in Israel. you got a king, you got a priest. And so they were separated, and they were separated historically by families. The king always came from one family. Since David, and from David on, the king would come from the line of Judah. David was of the line of Judah. Prior to him was Saul. Saul was a bust. He was a Benjamite. After that came David. He's Judas. So it was the house of Judah. So you had to be a Judahite to be the king. Okay, now the priest came from a different line. The, the priest was not from Judah. The priest was from a Levi, different tribe. And we call that the Levitical line. That's why you have a Levitical priest. You got a book in your Bible that deals with priestly conduct and worship and, and ordinances. And it's called what? Leviticus. That's what that comes from. And so you got these two families. And the, specifically, the first high priest recognized in Scripture was the brother of Moses, Aaron. And he was a Levite. And you'd never have a king and a priest cross over in the history of Israel. You never had that. There's only one man who has ever lived that would meet both uh, uh, criteria. They would, they would have both qualities of king and priest, and it's the Messiah. And Psalm 110 describes that person. He's going to be a king, and he's going to be a priest. The only other place in Scripture you're going to see that description is also of the Messiah, and it's in Zechariah 6.13. And here's what it says in the New King James. It says, yes, he, talking about Messiah, he shall build the temple of the Lord. He shall bear bear the glory and shall sit and rule on his throne. That's king. You sit on a throne, you're king. And so he shall be a priest on the throne. So he's a king and he's a priest. And the council of peace shall be between them both. Between them both. Between king and priest. Okay? Fascinating. There it was an unheard of concept that you'd have king and priest in one man. Now, I hope you're enjoying this journey here. I'm going to take you into the New Testament now. We're going to Hebrews. I want to show you the passage that speaks about this man Melchizedek that draws a correlation between him and Christ, and it's very very interesting and it contains the greatest truth of the Christian life. You need to know this truth. So, Hebrews 7 Starting in verse 1, it's it's referencing Melchizedek yet again. And it says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. It was just corroborating everything that we've already talked about. He, Melchizedek, is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. That's what Melchizedek means, what we've said. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. So I'm just confirming what I've already told you in the New Testament. Now, watch this, verse three. He, Melchizedek, this this will blow your mind. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. So here's this, it's talking about Melchizedek. He has no father, he has no mother, no beginning, no end. Uh, Who else does that describe? Interesting. Melchizedek's got no birthday, he's got no tombstone. Now if you have no beginning and no end, what does that make you? It makes you, in your notes, eternal. He's eternal. <clears throat> now, if you're eternal, what are you? If you've got no beginning, no end, uh, that would describe deity, would it not? So it's, is this a case for Melchizedek being A Christophany, a Theophany, a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. That's a pretty strong case. Am I drawing a line here indefinitely in red ink? Uh, No, but it's a strong case. I will tell you some other theories about this guy. There are people that theorize that Melchizedek is an angel. And, And specifically, they say he's the angel Michael because it says that he is like the Son of God, and so they say Michael means he who is like God. And so they've theorized that he is, he is the angel Michael. I dismiss that idea out of hand because this says he has no beginning, no end. Michael had a beginning. Angels are created beings. And so I would say you can't say that this is Michael. Now some say this business about Melchizedek having no mother, no father, no beginning, no end. All that means, they say, is that uh, he has no recorded genealogy. There's no record of this stuff, it's, it's been lost to antiquity. We don't know, and that's what they say. I find that a little hard to believe. If the guy's a king, rest assured, there's a record of his genealogy. Those are things that you hold on to. And not only is he a king, he's a priest. And so we're gonna know where he came from and what happened to him. Some say, this is an interesting theory, some say that Melchizedek is actually Shem, that his identity is the son of Noah, Shem the father of this whole line here of which Abram is part. And Shem was exceptionally long-lived. In fact, there's a good, uh, there's good uh, evidence that Shem was still alive at this point of hi- in history. He was very long-lived. I doubt this, that, that that is his identity. For one thing, we know Shem's genealogy. And so we can't say that he had no beginning and no end because Shem clearly had a beginning. We know when Shem died And so this cannot be Shem. Furthermore, Abram is descended from Shem and would know exactly who he was. But I don't want to get lost on whether or not Melchizedek is a Christophany. There is a more important takeaway for us here. And it has to do with this notion of his eternal nature. And it it, it deals with that phrase that we saw before regarding the Messiah being a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. We're going to see that crop up again. So if you think about the fact that the Messiah, whom we know to be Jesus Christ, that he is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, you might say to yourself, so what? Why do I care? You know, in your notes, why should I care if Jesus is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek? What, what does that mean? For me, well, we saw between Psalm 110 and Zechariah 6 that that's, that's what the Messiah would be. He would be a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Let me tell you why that's so important. When I say that in one man, the Messiah, that you've got king and you've got priest, what's the problem with that statement based on what, you've told you, what I've told you about the line of kings and priests? You can't be both because of the lineage required for both. The kings come from Judah, the priests come from Levi. Levi. How can you be a king and a priest? Were it not for Psalm 110, no Jew would ever entertain this idea at all. If a Jewish person asked you, who is Jesus Christ, you say, well, he's my king and he's my priest. They'd say, impossible. That makes no sense whatsoever. You can't be two tribes at the same time. Well, let's let's look at that. The priests come from the Levites. They're Levitical. Well, Psalm 110 tells us something. Psalm 110 told us he's not a Levitical priest. What kind of priest is he? He's a priest after the order of Melchizedek. That's your cue again to say, so? Why do I care about that? What's that mean? What's it mean? that he's a Melchizedekian priest instead of a Levitical priest. What, what does that matter to me, Pastor Scott? Well, you're, that's why you're in Hebrews right now. We're in a book that, that is not written to, to most people like us. We're, most of us are Gentiles. You might be Jewish in here, but uh, that book, it's all in the name. Who's it written to? The Hebrews. And so the audience of this book is an audience that cares about lineage, this matters to them. And so the author of Hebrews continues on in verse 4. He says, See how great this man was, to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office, meaning the Levitical line that he's acknowledging that among Jews, you guys all know that priests come from Levi. Not, not every descendant of Levi would be a priest, but every priest would be descended from Levi in Israel he said not all of them have a commandment in the law to take tithes or rather they do have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people that is their brothers although these are descended from Abraham but this man Melchizedek who does not have his descent from them meaning Melchizedek is not descended from Levi are you sure uh pretty sure how do you know Levi wasn't born yet Melchizedek predates Levi. So he's not of the Levitical line. He came before Levi. That's important because we're about to make the case that the priesthood of Melchizedek is superior to the generally accepted priesthood of Israel. Which to to the Jews, this is everything. Like the priests are the greatest, right? That's the standard for the whole nation. And the author here is saying... There's a man who is superior to all of that priesthood. And he goes on, he says that this man received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. All right? So this guy, Melchizedek, he receives a tithe from Abram, who is the covenant recipient, and therefore is superior to all the priests in the history of Israel. Abram is greater than all Israelites, even the priests. And he tithes to this man, Melchizedek. Not only that, but then Melchizedek blesses Abram. And the one who blesses is greater than the one who is being blessed, which means he's greater than Abram. That means he's greater than all the priests who would exist in Israel's history. And that means this is a superior priesthood than the Levitical priesthood. Look at verse eight. It says, in the one case tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case by one of whom uh, it is testified that he lives. He's saying Melchizedek has no beginning, no end. He's already made that case. This guy had no birthday. He had no death day. He's eternal. And that's a pretty good argument for superiority. If you have a priest that lives forever versus a priest that croaks, which is the better of the two? It's the one that lives forever. He's eternal. All the human priests in Israel's history eventually died. They kicked the can at some point. Not Melchizedek. There's no record of that. Who else do we know that lives forever? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Who else do we know that is called a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek? It's Jesus Christ. Are they one and the same? Perhaps. Perhaps. But as a sort of side argument, check this out. Here's what the author of Hebrews says. He says, One might even say (laughs) that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham. For he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Is that a weird argument? That's kind of a weird argument. The author, he, it's like he's anticipating the Jews uh, in his audience to say, well, now, you know we, know, we know Abram paid tithes to Melchizedek, but our priests today, they would never pay tithes to Melchizedek because they're superior to him. They're of a higher order. And the author here is saying, no, no, they, they did because they were, they were descended from Abraham. And he's making this case. It's it's this argument that 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 the whole priesthood, the entire Levitical order, paid tithes when Abraham did because they were in his loins. They had yet to be conceived. Now that may may be a weird argument to you and me. It's not to the Jews. They take heredity very seriously, very literally. Now check check this out. Verse 11. Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? He's saying we need a perfect priest. We need a perfect priest. It's not perfection doesn't come through law. You're going to need a perfect priest the Levitical priesthood that that operated throughout Israel's history and and even today is imperfect. Here are the flaws that we note in that priesthood. Number one, it's a national priesthood. It is for Israel only. They don't represent the rest of mankind. That's one. Second flaw, it's a subordinate priesthood. The priests of of that day were always beholden to the king. They They were subject to the king. Third, the sacrifices of that priesthood were temporary. They had to perform them over and over and over and over and over. Fourth, it was limited in that the priesthood was a hereditary one. You had to be of a certain line or you couldn't be a priest. And then we also see, fifth, that it was a finite priesthood. Eventually, every priest died, every priest kicked the bucket. And so this is an imperfect priesthood. We need a perfect priest. How do we get a perfect priest? Verse 12, for when there's a change in the priesthood, there's necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken, that would be the Messiah. The Messiah belonged to another tribe. He's saying, your priests are all Levites. The Messiah is a Judite. Nobody who has ever been a Judahite has served at the altar as priest. Verse 14, for it's evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, not Levi. Melchizedek, who has become a priest... Not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent. In other words, Melchizedek predated Levi. Jesus did not descend from Levi, and yet both are priests. Verse eighteen: For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law was, uh, for the law made nothing perfect. Drop down to verse twenty-one, but this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. God the Father said, I decree this to be so. You will be a priest. It has nothing to do with your lineage. I don't care who your earthly daddy was. I declare you a priest. It's an ironclad promise. He says, you are a priest forever. Not until you die, not until your son takes over, You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Now watch this. Stay with me. But he who holds his priesthood, and I want you to underline this word, permanently, permanently, because he continues forever. Underline that word. Forever. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost, underline that phrase, to the uttermost Those who draw near to God through him since he always, underline that word, lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests who sacrifice daily, first for their own sins and then for those of the people since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints Men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect. Last underline: forever. Are you seeing a theme? Forever, forever. We have a forever priest. He has no beginning. He has no end. How much better is this priest? I told you the flaws of the old priesthood. This one is better in every regard. He's not a a priest after the order of Levi, he's a priest after the order of Melchizedek. How is that better? Well, the Levi priesthood is national, they represent only Israel. This priesthood represents all mankind. Are you glad about that? Are you glad you got a priest? You don't have to just sit over here and be lonely. And think, oh, Israel, that's the chosen people. I don't get in on that. No, you've got a priest because of the order of Melchizedek. The, the, flaw, the second flaw of the old priesthood is that it's, it's subordinate. Okay, uh, it, This one is not subordinate. That one was subject to the king. Those priests had to answer to the king. This priest is a king. He's both. This is a royal priesthood. The other priesthood had a flaw in that it was temporary. They had to sacrifice over and over and over. Ha, not this one, baby. This is one sacrifice, once for all. Does Jesus ever have to die for your sins again? He does not. He is a one-time, permanent sacrifice for sin. And then fourth, uh, the other priesthood was limited in terms of its lineage. You had to be of a certain lineage to be a priest. Jesus is a priest because he's worthy he 's worthy, has nothing to do with bloodline, and then number five, that priesthood was flawed because it was uh, it was finite. They would all die. This priest, well, he died, but he rose again, and he lives eternally it 's an eternal priesthood it 's infinite, no beginning, no end. Why is this important that we have a priesthood available to us that meets all of these requirements, it's, it's important because, and I would jot this down, when the stakes are high, the standards are higher. They must be higher. Your, higher, your standards must exceed the stakes. The stakes for you are devastating to you. If you cannot rely on a standard that is greater than those stakes. I watched a, a documentary the other day. You might recall the tragic event of, of a year or two ago. There was a submersible called the Titan Sub. There was, a, there was an entrepreneurial explorer named Stockton Rush, and he designed this submersible. and He called it the Titan, and he would take people down. If they had enough money, he'd charge them $250,000 a piece, and he would take them down three miles to view the wreck of the Titanic in the North Atlantic. And this sub was different from other subs of that kind. He wanted to pack as many people as he could in there, and so it was not a sphere like most subs that would go to that depth. It was a a cylinder, which is not regarded as being of as great integrity as a sphere at that depth. He also used a material to make it that was very cost-effective. It was made of carbon fiber. And so... He had a sphere made out of carbon fire, fiber. Rather, He launched this from a floating platform that he dragged behind another boat. And rather than launch it from the boat itself, he didn't have a boat big enough. And so he'd launch it from a platform. That's generally not how you do things, but that's how he did it. And he made a lot of money doing this. He took people down, 13 dives he made. He probably felt pretty good about all this, but what he didn't realize is with each successive dive, the integrity of that vessel was compromised. There was a strain on that vessel. And finally, on June 18, 2023, the Titan Sub was about 300 meters off the floor of the ocean in view of Titanic. And in a heartbeat, it imploded and instantly killed all five passengers on board. What was the problem? The problem was the standards for that vehicle did not rise above the stakes into which they had subjected themselves. It was the most unforgiving of environments. You had a vehicle that was, that was made on the cheap. It was piloted by a Logitech video game controller, for crying out loud. Nobody held the... the, the uh, Specs of that vessel to a high enough standard to ensure their safety. And the North Atlantic killed them as a result. You operate in the highest of stakes. It's the most unforgiving of environments. You are a person upon whom is the wrath of God in your natural sinful state. What do you need? Who is it that you want to go before you? To protect you? To stand between you and the lake of fire? I guarantee you, you want want a forever priest. You want a perfect priest. If you were gonna have open heart surgery and they were gonna cut you open and they were gonna place a foreign object in your heart to keep your ticker going and they were gonna sew you back up, and they were going to resuscitate you if worse came to worse. Who do you want doing that? How about me? I'm cheap. I mean, you know, your insurance won't cover me, but I will save you money. And who knows? I might get lucky. I can start my lawnmower. All right? No, I assure you, you don't want me. I don't meet the standard. Well, who do you want standing between you you? and a Christless eternity. You want a forever priest. You want someone who unequivocally meets the standard. Is that Abraham? No. Is that Paul? No. Both good men. Listen, I don't care who my priest is as long as he is divine, eternal, unimpeachable character and he lays down his life for me, there is one and only one that meets that description, and it is Jesus Christ. Now, I'm going to leave you with this. How should I respond to Jesus, my priest, how do i respond you can write some of this down if you want to but i definitely just want you to hear it okay i will tell you you respond to your priest the way abram responded to his priest meaning you commune with him you commune with him melchizedek brought the bread he brought the wine abram partook fellowship was sustained by what he brought are you sustained by your priest are you fed and cared for by your priest, you commune with him, and then you view life through him. You view life through him. Abram had tasted of what Melchizedek had, and therefore he could see clearly what the king of Sodom offered, and it was not good. And he rejected it out of hand because he was viewing life through the lens of this priest. And then third, you listen to him. You listen to him. Melchizedek gave Abram the truth, and Abram Receive that insight. He understood who has blessed him, who has given him victory. And then you give unto him. Abram tithed to Melchizedek. What does that mean? He gave him the greatest that he had. He gave him the cream of the crop. He gave him his first fruits, the best. Is that you? Do you give your best to the Lord? And then finally, you receive his blessings. You receive his blessings. Abram knelt This priest of the God Most High, Melchizedek, laid his hands on him. He prayed over him, blessed him. You know what it means to be blessed? Greek word is eologia. You know what word we get from eologia? We get eulogy. When you die and there's a memorial service for you, someone will come and they will give a eulogy. You know what it means, that word? It means to speak well of. I hope that when someone does a eulogy for you, they speak well of you instead of calling you a nasty so-and-so. No, you want someone to speak well of you on your behalf. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ, one day when you stand in eternity, you will not be alone. You will have an intermediary. You will have a priest. You will have a divine attorney who will come forth and say, Father, this one is with me. He's with me. She's with me. They are righteous as I am righteous. What a thing to behold and to think about. Are you relating to your priest the way Abram relates to his? Would you bow with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for our great, mighty, perfect, and eternal high priest who is not just a priest. He is king. And we acknowledge his authority, his provision. We find our sustenance only in him. And we come with a heart of gratitude and of giving and sacrifice unto him who is worthy, not because of a bloodline, God, but because you have declared him to be so and because he is so. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the majesty. And the, and the unity of your book, as we have traced it from Genesis all the way to the New Testament today, that your word stands forever and it speaks of the one who stands forever. And we rely on the one who is forever. Because it will be forever that we will be with him in glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.